When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Randa Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Erica Geis about her book titled Water Always Wins, Thriving in an Age of Drought and Deluge, published by Head of Zeus in 2022. Um, In the book, Erica, who is an award-winning science journalist, follows water detectives as they search for clues to water's past and present. Really importantly, she focuses on how we're living in this world uh, where there's a lot more extreme water than maybe a lot of us are used to or grew up with. Um, And this is probably not something that's going to go away. So it's a really helpful book in understanding kind of how we got to our present relationship with water um, and helping understand maybe some possibilities for going forward. So I'm really excited, Erica, to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Could we start off with, please, by you introducing yourself and explaining why you wanted to write this book? Sure. I'm a science journalist, as you mentioned. Um, I have been covering water. I mean, I I write about science and the environment, and I used to write a lot about renewable energy. And about 10 to 15 years ago, I kind of moved more into covering water and all kinds of aspects, which was sort of a natural uh, evolution for me, I think, or a natural outcome, because I grew up in California. Uh, where water is kind of a statewide obsession. Um, We've always had cycles of scarcity. And, you know, a lot of that is actually due to overuse of water as opposed to actual scarcity. Um, We could potentially go into that later. Um, But, you know, at a grade school assembly, um, we had an earlier drought and, uh, you know, all the kids came together so that people could tell us about, how to take short showers and conserve water. Um, so I've always been very aware of the importance of water. And I think also my family did a lot of camping and hiking when I was a kid. And um, we kind of made a point of swimming in any water body that we came across, whether it was the Pacific Ocean or a lake at 8,000 feet elevation with ice in the middle. Um, so yeah, I've just, I, I've always had a kind of a passion for water. And I think I think a lot of people do, you know, it's sort of, um, I mean, our bodies are largely water and I think everybody has a favorite body of water, either from their childhood or some special nature experience. I mean, it is the thing that gives us life, it is said. So it makes sense that a lot of us have um, close relationships with it. I think it probably also helps uh, that it's something really tangible that you can start to understand from a really early age. Um, 
And yet there's still a lot that we don't understand, um, as demonstrated by the book. Um, So I was wondering if you could kind of help us think through where some of our gaps in understanding or misconceptions um, might come from. And one of the things you mentioned in the book that I found really interesting was the idea that, um, at least in some cultures, particularly Western cultures, um, Judeo-Christian conceptions of nature have influenced kind of how we think about water um, and where some of the maybe differences in our understanding are between what's actually there, as you mentioned, kind of where the scarcity crisis comes from may not be where we think. So I'm wondering if you could explain for us a bit kind of how this Judeo-Christian background that obviously most of the West has inherited impacts conceptions of water. Sure. Um, People are starting to pay more attention to water more widely, I think, because we have been having a lot of water-related disasters, uh, you know, like the flooding in Germany that happened last year, um, various towns in England flood every year, um, and the terrible drought in the U.S. Southwest and other places. Um, And I think people are beginning to understand that uh, these are some of the manifestations of climate change and the world that we're going to be living in. So it's important that people are recognizing that and hopefully feeling like they need to do something about it. Um, But one thing I think a lot of people don't understand is that our development choices play a significant role in these water disasters. There was a guy in the mid uh, 20th century, Gilbert White in the US, and um, he wrote that floods are acts of God, but flood disasters are acts of man. And his point was that, you know, you've built in the floodplain. The floodplain is meant to absorb floods. If you left the floodplain to, to do its work, then you wouldn't have businesses and homes there that were flooding. So that's just one example. Um, but, uh, you know, our urban sprawl, the area of our cities has doubled since uh, just 1992 globally. Um, we've intervened on two thirds of the world's great rivers. Um, humans have filled in 87% of the world's wetlands since 1700. So we've really dramatically interfered with the natural water cycle, particularly these um, slow phases such as wetlands and floodplains and high altitude mountain meadows um, where water lingers and moves underground. And then so that absorbs flooding and it also supplies water to streams in dry seasons. Um, So your question of how did we get to this point where we are causing problems with water, even in our attempts to control water. And I think that word is actually the crux of it, control. Um, So in Western or dominant culture, we do have a very control-oriented attitude toward water. And that comes from seeing water either as a commodity um, or as a threat. So a commodity is something everybody needs and a threat such as from flooding. Um, And so, you know, we try to control it with dams and levees and concrete stormwater drains. uh, But that ignores the system of which water is a part. You know, water is its own entity with agency. It has relationships with the underground soil, rock, microbes, beavers, humans. And when we 
approach water with kind of a single-minded problem-solving lens, then we're ignoring these systems. And that's what causes a lot of these unintended consequences. And yeah, there's a section in my book where I look at um, the, the book of Genesis and the Bible, uh, you know, man shall have dominion over the earth. And you know, basically, um, a, a popular interpretation of the Bible is that everything on earth exists for man, for humans. And that's uh, <laughs> what some people these days are calling a very human supremacist attitude. Um and it's not an attitude that people um, share worldwide. It's not uh, mandatory for, for humans to look at nature that way. Um, so this idea was kind of laid out in the Bible. But then um, during the Renaissance, um, kind of emerged an articulation of Aristotle's idea of the great chain of being. And this is the idea that, you know, you have God at the top and the kings and the humans and then lesser animals down to, you know, fish and bugs and things like that. Um, so that's a way of separating humans from nature. Of course, humans are animals. We're part of nature. Um, but this attitude of separating and of othering nature was very convenient at a time of uh colonial expansion around the world um, because it enabled people to look at nature as uh, something less than human, um, something that was there to be exploited for human benefit and not to consider uh, the agency of other animals or indeed indigenous people uh, that they encountered around the world, that othering extended to them as well. Um, and, you know, part of that was also people were going to these new places where they weren't familiar with the animals. They didn't understand how the natural cycles worked. They didn't understand uh, the natural water availability in a given place. And instead, they brought the lens of the place that they had left and in many cases tried to kind of recreate that um, doing the same type of farming or um, and, and also killing <laughs> many things that they felt were dangerous because they, they didn't understand them. Um, whereas if you look at indigenous peoples um, around the world who, in an era before globalization, had to live within the means of what the, you know, the land and water supplied, they were much more, uh, they paid much closer attention to those systems and understood how they worked and what their relationships were and their limits. So you have this sort of um, clash between uh, outsider and insider understanding of the landscape. Mm. Thank you for explaining that. Um, it's really, as soon as you explain it, it suddenly makes a lot of things make sense, but isn't necessarily someone something someone thinks about when it goes, why do we have all these floods? Oh, maybe it's the book of Genesis. Um, that's not necessarily a connection that automatically comes to mind. But when you explain it, it's like, hmm, okay, I can see kind of how that train of logic um, sort of follows. So based off of this, right, the idea of this kind of inheritance in particular cultures, but not others, um, you talk a lot in the book about um, a different way of thinking, um, potentially a more effective way of thinking of living with water. Can you tell us what the slow water movement is? 
Sure. Yeah. So some of the other cultures around the world who don't think of water as a commodity or a threat, they might think of water as a friend or even a relative um, or as a collaborator. And so all of these frames help people ask a different question than we have been asking for the last couple hundred years, which is, what does water want? And so the people who are trying to go a different way, often they will use something called historical ecology. And the idea behind that is to map where water went, where streams and wetlands existed before we dramatically altered them. And the reason for that is often, you know, a condo building built on wetlands is the first to flood. Water tends to try to go to the places where it used to go, where it wants to go. Um, so if you can understand water's desires, then you can make choices of, okay, you know, this building has flooded and we need to tear it down. Maybe we won't build <laughs> another condo in the exact same place. You know, maybe we will save some of that area uh, for water. Um, so what water wants is a key facet of slow water. And I, I called this slow water because all of these people I met around the world who were doing dramatically different projects um, to solve different water problems from glacial loss, uh, from flooding, droughts, etc. All of them were seeking to either restore or protect or recreate slow water phases in some fashion. So there's a lot of wonderful things that happen when water slows on land um, from absorbing floods to supplying water in the dry season, uh, generating food at the base of the food web. And uh, when you rush water off the land, you miss out on all of that. Also a lot of interesting physical things in terms of moving sediment around and uh, stopping erosion. And so, um, there are some principles to slow water, which is respecting water, acknowledging it as an entity with agency. There's a systems thinking lens of, you know, looking at its relationships and how it functions within the landscape, as opposed to, you know, a single focus problem solving, like how do we get ourselves more water? Um, slow water projects are bespoke. Uh, you know, you can't just stamp them out cookie cutter because every place has its own geology, um, hydrology, ecology, and cultures, um, communities. So each, there are lessons that can be learned. There are commonalities, um, but every place needs something specific. Uh, ideally, slow water is also local water. Um, so slow water has some parallels to the slow food movement of the late 20th century that came out of Italy um, with the idea that it, it's drawing attention to our local landscapes and our local communities and how, in the case of slow food, how food production impacts that with the case of slow water, how the way we relate, relate to water is managing that. So, um, you know, in California, it's anathema to talk about local water because so much of our water is moved long distances. But there are a bunch of problems with that. Um, there was a really interesting 40-year overview of major interventions on rivers around the world, and they found that they 
brought more water to 20% of the world's people, but they decreased water to 24% of the world's people. So, you know, it's not magic water. It's like, oh, let's go get some more water. You know, you're taking that water from other people and from other ecosystems. Um, so that's one issue, uh, but also it doesn't work out so well for the people who are getting the water, uh, because there's sort of this false sense of security. You see the giant reservoir of water and you think we've got plenty of water and you don't understand, um, the limits of a particular region in terms of water availability, or even that particular year, uh, when water availability fluctuates. And so what happens is you end up making a lot more people vulnerable to the water cycle. And, you know, you see this in Las Vegas and Los Angeles and San Diego and um, not just, you know, hundreds of thousands of people moving into an area uh, where there isn't great water security, uh, but also businesses. And um, so then you just make them that much more vulnerable when drought comes again. And there's a similar principle called the levy effect. Um, you know, you build a levy so that an uh, area doesn't flood regularly. And so everybody thinks, oh, great, it's safe. And they move in and they build their homes and businesses. But then eventually there is a flood and it's a bigger one and it's more catastrophic, particularly because you have all those people who are vulnerable. So anyway, slow water is local water. Um, and then also there's often a community responsibility aspect to it, Um We've gotten very used to centralized water management where, um, you know, government officials or water utilities control our water and deliver our water and we don't have to think about it at all. And um, it's held in the big reservoir. It's treated in the drinking water facility. But um, some of these communities around the world I looked at, they had a more of a... um, sense of the commons about water. So there was responsibility that was shared um, where people would take care of the water systems they developed, which could mean, you know, removing sediment from it regularly. Um, But they also had water sharing agreements where, um, you know, they recognize how much water is available at a given time and it's allocated uh, in a, in a just manner. Um, And so Slow water projects are distributed across a landscape as opposed to centralized. And that makes sense if you think about that 87% of the world's wetlands that we've eradicated. Um, So, you know, there needs to be scale throughout a watershed to make space for water again. And, um, you know, there's a lot that can be done within a city uh, to, to make spaces for water to move into the land. But it also involves looking upstream. Um, There was an example in Pamplona, Spain, where it was flooding regularly, and there was a farming area just outside of the city where they were uh, trying to keep water off the floodplain so that they could farm there. And when that area was returned to the floodplain and the water was able to linger there, it dramatically reduced flooding in the city. so it's a little bit of a ramble, but there are uh, those are some of the key aspects of slow water. Thank you for explaining that um, and helpfully inputting examples kind of as you went so that we can understand not just the principles, but also how that works in practice and why that works in practice. Um, I think that helps uh, set the stage really for kind of the overview in a lot of ways of what you talk about in the book um, and as well for the interview. So 
I would love to kind of ask you about some of the specific things that you discuss in the book of kind of ways that water, we can change how we relate to water or how we arrange ourselves in and around water. Um, and I'd love to kind of start with the one that you um, have just mentioned. Uh, you gave the example in Spain. Well, I'm wondering, are there other ways um, that cities can make space for water? Yeah, definitely. Um, and cities are making space for water around the world. Um, but I think one of the most ambitious examples is probably sponge cities in China, uh, which is a national program. And, you know, China urbanized very rapidly over the last few decades. And as they built out cities, they largely followed the Western model and did, kind of made, made all the same mistakes that, that we have. Um, and so now they are starting to experience uh, a lot of urban flooding and disasters. You know, people are dying in some of these floods. So Sponge Cities um, has a goal of making 70% of a given area within a city permeable within a set period of time. Um, so, you know, when we think of cities, we think, well, you know, it's all developed, it's all paved, you know, there's no room for water to soak into the land. Um, but there are a lot of opportunities. Um, there actually is a lot of space between buildings that doesn't necessarily have to be paved. Um, and some cities are building bioswales, which are basically like vegetated ditches. And so this is a supplement to a stormwater drain and tank underneath the city. Um, it gives water a place to slow on land and to move into the land generally filled with water-loving plants. Um, you can do things like green roofs, which also slow the runoff. Um, so in all of these cases, the water is still running off. It's just running off less quickly. There was a study that showed that for every 1% uh, area of paved expanded area within a city, nearby flood stages were raised 3.3%. So the paving really does have a dramatic impact on why this urban flooding is happening. Um, Typically, a lot of industrial activities were sited along rivers because um, they needed the water input and would often dump their pollution as well. And as those businesses have uh, closed, uh, you know, there was a lot of derelict areas along rivers. And so some cities are cleaning those up and then converting those into parks. And the benefit of having a park right alongside the river is it, it you know, as long as your soil is effectively permeable, you're essentially making space for the floodplain. And then you have an area that people can enjoy when it's not in flood and you have extra capacity for the water when the water is higher. Um, yeah, there's, the, there's many things. I think a lot of creeks and rivers have been paved over in cities or put in pipes um, or, you know, put into kind of straight channels with concrete. And that is not at all a natural system. And there was an interesting example in Seattle, where they were, the, the creek was still on the surface, but it was in a tight channel, it was straight, it was um, hemmed in. So there were houses that were flooding all the time, because they had been built in the floodplain in a, a school and a road. 
And so over a period of about 20 years, the city bought out people who were continually flooding to make more space for the creek. And when they um, restored it, they kind of reintroduced the slower S curves. And then, um, which, which is kind of common practice because when you have the, the straight channel, it's a fire hose effect and it scours out, all, you know, sort of all the materials. So that's when you have a lot of problems with erosion. And um, what they did that was quite novel is um, they recognized that something underneath the river called the hyperreic zone, that's hypo under reic flow, um, had been scoured away by this sort of urban fast water. And the hyperreic zone is important because uh, it's been called the liver of the river or the streams, uh, the streams gut. And, you know, it has a microbiome just like our gut. And therefore it plays a fundamental role in the health of the stream because it um, does a lot of biological and chemical and physical processing. Um, and so if you ignore that area, it's also a place that uh, water is moving downstream, but much more slowly because it's moving through rock and soil. And so it's a way in which streams continue to have water year round, which is something in the West, like we just tend to think of streams as seasonal because they're dry in the summer. But historically, that wasn't the case when groundwater systems were, were healthier. Um, it is fundamental for the, the food web and the biodiversity of life in the stream. And all of these processes also help to kind of um, maintain the physical movement of the water and the sediment distribution. So cities tend to spend a ton of money dredging sediment out of these stream channels. But if you have a more natural functioning system, you can save a lot of money because the stream is kind of lightly redistributing the sediment itself um, and you have less flooding, et cetera. Um, some very cool examples. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this Seattle effort. Uh, that was one of the most fascinating uh, examples in a lot of ways in the book, uh, because it seems quite common, or at least I live in London, so maybe I think it's very common to sort of pave over streams, right? There are loads of them in London. Um, and it's like, okay, well, all right, reading the book, I can understand why that's a bad idea. Great. So let's just take the pavement off the streams. And it was really uh, fascinating to read the section about Seattle and realize, okay, it's a lot more complicated than that. There's a lot of different things that need to happen. Um, and kind of the, the way you laid out piece by piece, the different aspects to consider, um, I think was really illuminating in a lot of ways. Um, and it's really interesting to kind of to have that overall summary that you've just helpfully given us um, and also to direct listeners to uh, the book for obviously the full details of uh, thinking about bugs <laughs> and sediment um, and the depth of the stream um, and all sorts of things that um, clearly make a massive difference. Uh, and it's not as simple as just kind of going, okay, well, let's remove the concrete from over this one. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, removing the concrete is a very important step. And I don't at all mean to sound discouraging because it's very worthwhile doing. But I think the goal of that was to show how complex these systems are and how much are going into it and, you know, what all, all of the damage that we cause that we really don't realize. But the, the upside to that is if we can take time to understand how water works with all of these different entities, the bugs, the microbes, et cetera, um, you know, we can ultimately restore something to a state where it's kind of maintaining itself. 
I mean, there are a lot of variables to whether it can actually maintain itself, but um, it is possible. And I, I would like to see more people thinking of that as the goal, you know, a stream isn't just a water feature. It's, it's doing a lot of things, important things. Well, so on the subject of kind of uh, the ecosystem and uh, things kind of sorting themselves out, I was wondering if you could tell us uh, moving from Seattle, very far away, but very close to me, uh, to England, what is gorilla beavering? <laughs> uh, yeah, so there was a phrase that people may be more familiar with called gorilla gardening. And this came up in typically cities where there was urban decay happening and abandoned lots and junk. And so people would uh, start gardening there and start community gardens or even just like throwing a bunch of wildflower seeds there to try to kind of beautify it and make it a more natural space within the city. And as um, people may know, beavers were completely hunted out and killed um, and removed from the United Kingdom about 400 years ago. So there weren't any here. Um, but there are people who are interested in rewilding who recognize the important water engineering work that beavers do and the many, many ways in which they can heal stream ecosystems. And so they wanted to bring beavers back and, uh, you know, the government was not on board with that. Um, I think they thought of it as, you know, practically not a native species <laughs> since it had been gone for so long. And so, yeah, people obtained beavers <laughs> and released them into streams in, in England. And uh, as of, I believe this morning, uh, it's now been announced that beavers will become uh, protected species again in England. So I guess the gorilla beavering has worked. <laughs> yes, mission accomplished. Um, I'd love to kind of continue the world tour, as it were. Uh, we've gone from what California to China to Seattle to England. Um, and you talk a lot in the book about uh, ancient techniques and especially the merging of ancient and modern knowledge around water management, living with it, etc., uh, in Peru and India. So I was wondering if you could maybe give us an example, like one from each perhaps, of kind of um, things from those uh, cultures and communities that are perhaps more effective in understanding what water wants and living with it. Sure. Um, I guess I'll start with India. So um, I went to Chennai, which is in the state of Tamil Nadu on the southeast coast of India. And actually, people all across India have developed really incredible ways of making the most of the water that comes to them, depending on their climate and geology. In South India, it was something called the Eri system, and that's spelled E-R-I-S. And Eri means tank in Tamil. And there's a mountain range that runs sort of north-south down the spine of the subcontinent called the Ghats. Um, and so from the flanks of the eastern Ghats all the way down slope to the Bay of Bengal near Chennai, people had built this series of depressions of, to hold water. And so if you think of one on the side of a mountain, 
um, it would have a little divot on the low end. So when the tank got full, the water would then run off to the next tank downhill. And in places where there were rivers and streams, these would be connected. So basically, it would be a way of expanding the water surface and the water storage um, because, you know, when the water slows, it, it reduced erosion um, from all that water running down the mountain. And then it would also help the water move down into the groundwater table, which was important um, for storing it into the dry season so that they could farm and, and eat year round. And then in places where there were not surface streams, um, they would connect these eddies to each other. Um, even today, like if you look at a Google map of South India, you see so much water on the land and you think, wow, <laughs> you know, what is that? And what's really interesting is at this point in time, people don't like the words lake, tank and water body are interchangeable because people don't remember 2000 years later, you know, which ones were human made and which ones were natural. And it wasn't just like building irrigation ponds for themselves. They were actually inserting themselves into the hydrology of the area by making space for this water to move underground. And um, so when the British arrived, they were gobsmacked by the scale and the sophistication of the system. Um, unfortunately, their respect had limits and uh, they quickly started, um, you know, implementing their typical centralized system. And uh, that damaged uh, a lot of the pathways that water would travel and, um, you know, filled in a lot of the tanks so that they could build more buildings on top of them. So, uh, you know, Chennai has been having problems with, it, it made international headlines a couple of years ago when it ran out of water. But in fact, Chennai runs out of water almost every summer. Um, and there was a massive flood in 2015 that killed hundreds of people and arguably had a, a bigger impact on locals in terms of um, wanting something to change. So part of it is um, restoring some of this eddy system. And then part of it is there are many natural wetlands around Chennai. It has three rivers. It's an incredibly water-rich area. Um, it actually gets one and a half times the water that it needs. Uh, so the fact that it ran out of water is a clear sign of, of mismanagement. Um, so there's an NGO there called Care Earth Trust that's been working to map all of these wetlands, um, both existing and eradicated. And there have been some court cases, both at the state and national level, um, to prevent ongoing development um, of these areas and to restore some of them. So it's kind of a combination of restoring the natural wetlands and these cultural um, systems, the eddies, in order to manage both their water problems, both um, flooding and water scarcity. And then in Peru, um, Peru is actually one of six places on earth where complex civilization emerged. Um, and arguably it was because of the need to manage water because like California, they have a long dry season um, that they needed to get through. And so many different ancient cultures in Peru innovated really interesting ways to manage water. Um, but the one that people are focusing on now was created about 1400 years ago by a people called the Wari. And they lived in the Andes Mountains and arguably their descendants still live there today. 
Um, and basically when the water was running high in the rainy season, they would divert some of it uh, in this canal made of rocks kind of cobbled together. Um, and that canal is called Amuna, which means to retain in Quechua. And they would route the water to a natural infiltration basin. So it's sort of like a little bowl on the side of the mountain that they understood to be very porous. So the water would move underground. And um, the water moves underground much more slowly than it does on the surface because it's moving through all of the rock and soil. And then it would emerge further down the mountain from a spring later. And so in this way, they were able to extend water availability into the dry season so that they could continue to grow their crops. And it's really fascinating because they know which infiltration basin corresponds with which spring downslope. So on some level, they have a picture in their mind of how water is moving through the underground, which scientists today spend a lot of uh, energy <laughs> trying to map. So um, it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting. And then the way that's coming into use in modern Peru is um, Peru is one of the most water insecure countries in the Western Hemisphere. Two thirds of its population live on a, the desert plateau between the Andes and the Pacific and get extremely little rainfall. They rely completely on the mountains for their water. And uh, historically, they've relied on glaciers, uh, which are melting and some of which have already disappeared. So, um, you know, they need a new, a new way of dealing with this. And so the government has passed a series of laws requiring all water utilities to invest a percentage of their fees that they get from water users into natural infrastructure upstream in the, in the watershed, um, which is really a remarkable change because previously it was considered corruption or a misuse of public funds to do something like that. And now it's required because they are understanding that they're part of this larger watershed. So some of the projects they're doing, these Amunas that I told you about, there are at least three villages that researchers are aware of um, that are still using the Amuna system, but there were many more Amunas scattered throughout the, the watersheds of the Andes. And so um, money from the utilities is going into restoring some of these systems. And this water can benefit both the farmers and the cities downstream because the farmers harvest the water from their spring, they water their crops, and then the water again moves into the underground and ultimately ends up in the river. So you're also extending uh, the water supply into the dry season for the city as well. And then they're doing other things like um, the grasslands at the high elevations also draw water into the soil in the underground, and some of those have been damaged by overgrazing. So there's some grazing regulations of, you know, rotating so that the, the grasslands don't get too damaged. And then there's a very special high-altitude wetland called Bofadales or, or Cushion Bog, and um, they are protecting those and restoring them in cases where they've been damaged. Amazing. Uh, thank you for explaining all of that. I think particularly the kind of research into it, I'm quite fascinated by of, you know, how do we take these sort of 
current modern scientific ways of thinking about how water works and then go to a culture that's so much older than current Western science and go, okay, hang on. How do we learn this like whole new way of thinking? And how do we kind of match that up with uh, what we're currently doing? And I think the Peruvian example in particular is a really fascinating instance um, of that in a place of such high need as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were some researchers that spent several years uh, studying the Amuna system and trying to measure the quantity of water and the timing of water. Uh, and they used, well, there was a cultural component. Um, one of the researchers spent a lot of time with the, uh, the farmers there and uh, exploring their knowledge and documenting it. And then, um, you know, there was um, an engineering guy who was working with tracers, uh, you know, so you could document a particular packet of water and find out where it went. Um, And then also the timing. uh, And so anyway, they found they measured the, the water and the timing in uh, this one area, and then they sort of extrapolated it, it, you know, using very conservative figures. Um, but what Lima already has a water deficit, um, and they found that the water retained by Amunas could make up double that deficit. Um, and the water could be delayed from a couple of weeks to like eight months. Um, but the average, I think, was about 45 days. Uh, so, you know, Lima is a major international city and it's got reservoirs and, um, you know, groundwater storage. And so it, it has all of those things. But by delaying the need to tap those resources in the dry season by extending the river flow, um, you know, you, you make your water supply more resilient. Yeah, that's 45 days is not insignificant for anyone that's ever lived in a drought. So as we've kind of, in some ways, obviously uh, not in the same detail as in the book itself, but completed something of a tour of the different areas that you um, describe and different methods that different places can use to kind of illustrate that there are other options, um, how then kind of one of the things that gets in the way of this, um, in addition to kind of all change is difficult, (laughs) most change costs money, etc., Um, But you talk specifically in the book about global capitalism, the system of global capitalism. Um, How does that complicate efforts in your mind to this idea of radically reshaping how we think about and how we live with water? Yeah, I mean, certainly in some places, water is literally a commodity in places where water has been privatized. And, you know, there's an international movement to consider water a human right and to make sure that everyone has it. Um, but bigger picture, um, all of the communities who have traditions of living more in in harmony with water and collaborating with water tend to have, um, a culture of reciprocity as opposed to scarcity. So what I mean by that is there's a communal aspect, you know, whether they have commons, like um, in India, there's something called Porumbok lands, which were often wetlands. And the idea is nobody owns them. They supply things that everybody needs, whether that's water or grasses for building material or, um, you know, food in terms of, you know, fish or something like that. Um, 
and like the in Peru, uh, the farmers are called comineros, and they have this communal system where everybody cares for the amunas. They have these communal work days where they go and they clean out all the sediment, um, and then they have a very a strict system for sharing the water. Um, and there's a water manager and that presidency, if you will, changes, I think once a year. Um, and it's very strictly allocated that everybody gets their share. Um, and you look at a place like California where water rights are not allocated equally, you know, the people who the Europeans who arrived earliest have the, the largest rights. And so you have a drought year and, um, somebody gets all the water and uh, somebody else gets no water. Um, so anyway, that's that's a little bit of a, a sidebar. But the thing about global capitalism is the goal of it is fundamentally at odds with sustainability because the goal is to make as much money as possible for the shareholders or for the owners. And so... It depends on resources, which are not typically valued. Resources and ecosystem services. Ecosystem services are completely outside an externality to the, the dominant economic system, which means that there's no value to them. I mean, they are priceless, but they're not valued, and so they're taken for granted. Um, and similarly with resources, the idea is that you would extract something to a point of kind of economic extinction, like where it did no longer made economic sense to extract it because it had become so rare and the value had increased. And then, you know, you turn to a substitute. So it's not, the goal of capitalism is not to make sure that everyone has enough. It's to make sure that the people running things get as rich as possible. So when you have that kind of lens, um, there's just a, that that's just completely incompatible with trying to manage a resource sustainably, trying to ensure that there's enough for the next year and the year after that. Um, and, you know, we've seen this play out again and again and again. I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's news. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, as we come towards the end of the interview, I'd love to kind of uh, shift from, I guess, the macro, right, global capitalism to the individual. And you talk about in the book, uh, you mentioned at the beginning, kind of the power of asking the question, uh, what does water want? And that this uh, was a driving kind of question for you in the book and a lot of the people that you spoke to um, and kind of found out what they were doing. And you discuss in the book kind of the power of simply asking that question, even for those of us, uh, myself certainly included, who are not water specialists, um, who are not water detectives, like some of the people in the book. Um, how can it help or what difference would it make if kind of just most people generally uh, spent more time thinking about what water wants? I think we've become, and when I say we, I mean people in Western cultures who live in cities or suburbia, um, I guess even, even rural people, you know, we've, we've become used to seeing water in a very unnatural context. We, we think, you know, a straight channel is what a river or a stream is. We don't understand what it's doing. And so the beautiful thing about that question, what does water want is, it brings curiosity 
and curiosity opens us up to so much new information. And I think it helps us to stop taking water for granted and to start thinking about what it means to be a partner in a healthy ecosystem, what it means for us to, I mean, the, the base motivation is for us to protect ourselves more from droughts and floods, but in doing so, we're also storing carbon dioxide in the landscape and reducing climate change. We're also um, ensuring that biodiversity continues by uh, making space for critters. And those critters in turn are helping those systems function, which provides so many of the important life services that we depend on. So now when I walk around my world, you know, I notice if I hear the sound of water underneath a manhole cover in the street, you know, oftentimes that is a creek imprisoned in that pipe as opposed to, uh, you know, somebody flushing. Um, if I see a, a stream on the surface, I notice whether it's got armored banks or whether there are native plants around it, whether it has a flat area nearby that it could expand to during a flood. I notice if there's a house built right up to the edge of it, that's probably going to flood the next time the water raises. Um, and so I think when you have that curiosity, certainly if you are in charge of your garden, if, if you're a homeowner or if you have the power to do things, there's a lot that you could do um, to slow water on your own little piece of land. Um, or potentially even install a green roof. Um, but I also want both the general public and decision makers, so that could be city council people, urban planners, to be aware of these options of collaborating with nature. Um, because, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not under the illusion that we're about to ditch global capitalism anytime soon. You know, it doesn't have to be a black or white, you know, there's a spectrum. And so people tend to default toward, oh, we have a flood, we need a levee. Oh, we have water scarcity, we need a dam or we need desalinization. So I'm just hoping to show people, all kinds of people, that there are these other options that we can be talking about, that we can be considering for our specific places. And so, you know, as a regular citizen, you know, maybe you'd go to your city council meeting or... Uh, you know, to advocate for something like this. And the thing is, um, it's really empowering in a way, you know, we can feel really overwhelmed by climate change. And, you know, we're waiting for international governments to agree and reduce emissions. And, you know, of course, we have to reduce emissions. But working with waterways within our own areas, is empowering because we can work with neighbors. We can make ourselves more resilient um, by giving ourselves buffer from flood and drought. We can actually reduce climate change because these um, systems store a lot of carbon. And that's a, a facet of reducing emissions, this land use change that is um, extremely overlooked and underfunded. And we're making the places where we live much more desirable. You know, um, E.O. Wilson famously said that we are biophiliacs. We love life. We're, we're beings who love life. And um, so by creating these more natural spaces within our human habitats, we also make 
our places uh, much more livable. Wonderful. Uh, well, I think that that's going to perhaps spur a lot of people to pay more attention to this. Um, so then as our as my final question, uh, the book has just come out. Uh, and obviously, it's something you've worked rather a lot on um, to include all this information and uh, make it so readable as well. But uh, I imagine you probably have a project you're working on now or next. Maybe you could give us a brief teaser. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think um, it, it, the book did just come out. So I am doing a lot of things like talking to you <laughs> and uh, giving talks at various um, water conferences and uh, talking to the Environmental Protection Agency in the United States and things like that. So I'm, I'm working to kind of get the message out right now. Um, but there are a lot of stories that I found in my reporting for the book um, that I haven't been able to, that I, that I didn't have space for in the book and I haven't had time to report yet. And also as people read the book, um, they are coming to me and telling me all kinds of fascinating things. So I am definitely keeping a list and thinking about what stories do I want to write next that are r related to this topic. Um, and I'm thinking about possibly trying to create some kind of site with resources of groups that are doing this kind of work or a way for people in different communities to talk to each other about uh, best practices. It's very, very early days in those thoughts. So I'm not sure how that might um, manifest, but there seems to be so much enthusiasm and passion for this. And I'd like to help um, facilitate it in some way if I can. Wonderful. Thank you very much um, for sort of sharing that. And it's great to know that uh, people have been responding so much to the book. I imagine that that's quite gratifying given how much work um, and thought you put into it. Yeah, I'm really, really um, grateful uh, that people are open to it because uh, I think it's such an important thing and it can really make a big difference. So that kind of then, I guess, concludes the interview um, on that wonderful note. And so to remind the listeners, the book that we've been talking about is titled Water Always Wins, um, published by Head of Zeus in 2022. As I said, it's just come out. Um, and we've been talking with the author of the book, Erica Guys. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It was, it was great.